a few days ago, I was thinking about uh, inviting somebody to speak for us this morning. And it so happened that I ran into, uh, into uh, Nuri. And I knew Nuri had worked with Dr. Brown for some time. And I said, Nuri, I'm trying to reach this man. And she says, you are in luck. Because today we just celebrated his retirement. I'm kind of, don't tell me he's gone. No, 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 he's still here. He's still here. Uh, Dr. Brown was gracious enough to, in short notice, accept our invitation to come and be with us this morning. I'm going to invite him to come up here. And I'm just going to, you know that I like to ask questions and figure out who people are and why are they here and that type of thing. So, Dr. Alistair Brown, you'll notice that he has a Spanish accent. I don't know how he picked that up. You have a Spanish accent? Not very Spanish, my friend. <laughs> no, I can't, I can't do Spanish. Not that one, but uh, no, I'm Scottish by background. And uh, you can call me Scottish, you can call me British, but if you call me English, your days are numbered. And, uh, but my wife, Alison, is English, so you can try her accent, and if you think we sound the same, get your hearing checked. Oh, that's fantastic. Dr. Brown, just a, just a brief, uh, we have a little bio in the, in the bulletin for you guys to get to know him a little better, but just wanted to ask you, how long have you been here in the seminary? Well, I came in September 2008. I, I sometimes tell people I caused the recession, because on my first weekend in the country, uh, Lehman Brothers went bust and everything went down the pan. But uh, no, I don't think I caused it, but that was quite a baptism of economic fire. But that's when I started as president at Northern Seminary up the road there at Lombard. Fantastic. And how, how, did you, how do you make that transition from, from uh, 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 where you're from yes. all the way to Lombard, Illinois? Well, I, I used to head up a missionary society, and I traveled to many, many different countries around the world. And the, the places which were completely different in every way, there was a sense in which the cultural adjustment was sort of easy because you just knew everything was different. Coming to the United States, so many things look the same and, and seem as if they would work the same way. So you don't immediately pick up on the subtle differences of which there are many. Hey, here's the, here's the one thing I found almost all Americans would agree is much better in Britain. Our election campaigns in the UK last for five weeks. Yes, yes. Am I winning here? I think I'm winning on that argument. But uh, that's the, the, the whole political scene. Actually, a lot of things within the church scene are just that little bit different, different issues, different sensitivities, and so on. And, but, you know, we felt after about two years... We were really only complaining about the same things as all the Americans. So we knew we'd adjusted. You acclimated quite well very quickly. We did. (laughs) Fantastic. I I just want to say also welcome to Allison. She's she's with us here. Uh, And the rest of your children and stuff is across the pond. Is that right? Well, the children are. We have four adult children, four grandchildren, number five coming soon. Um, but, our but he's not proud about that. Our, no. Well, there we go. Don't get me started. But the stuff, um, finally, we've been living in Naperville, and all our stuff disappeared in a 40-foot-long container on Wednesday. So at the moment, it's on its way, shall we say, to the East Coast, then onto the high seas, and we hope, hope we will see it 
in about four or five weeks from now, arrive at the door of the home that we will have uh, over there in the south of England. Well, I hope it all comes, and it comes in, in good shape. Yes, thank you so uh, much. Just want to make sure that we so happy that you chose to come and spend time with us. He had to cancel a number of meetings or an act, and activities to come here to be with us today. So we're just pleased that you were able to come with us. So pleased thank, to be here. Thank, thank you. you for being here. Thank you. Well, certainly a very happy Sabbath day to all of you, and I assure you, it is a joy. It's a warm morning, so you've got to stay awake. Actually, quickly, one of my favorite stories about when temperatures were something like this, but this is the south of England when it really can get this warm as well. Believe me, trust me, have faith. Um, Way back in Victorian times, when he was a young man, the man who became a famous preacher of the time, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, was preaching on a Sunday afternoon in a small chapel in Cambridgeshire. He hated the Sunday afternoon services because people would already have been at church in the morning, had a big lunch, and they always kind of fell asleep in the, in the afternoon, no matter what he was doing. He was a great preacher, but they were falling asleep. He noticed that happening on that warm, sunny Sunday afternoon in that church in Cambridgeshire. And so he did something which today would be wholly illegal to do. Don't try it. But he suddenly rushed down the center aisle shouting, fire, fire. And the people stirred and said, where? He said, where you're going if you don't wake up and pay attention. It's been a privilege for Alison and for me to be both in the United States, but for me especially at Northern Seminary. And I just want you to know that Nuri has been a key person in the life of that seminary down through how many years, Nuri? 25, which means she's now nearing the age of 30. Um, but a long time and a real anchor and one of the most gracious, loving and diligent people that I have known, and I've been so proud that she's been one of my colleagues, and miss her, and Ken, and many other people, of course, but uh, she's a great ambassador for Jesus Christ, and you need to know that. So, When I was a child at, at, at school, down through all the ages, I have to admit, I was not always the most well-behaved, and for all of us who were guilty of some misdemeanors. This was in Scotland. I was, I was born, anyone here keen on golf? You would, if you are, you would know the name of St. Andrews, the kind of ancient home of golf in Scotland, east coast. I was born there. I grew up nine miles away from there. And in Scotland at that time, something else which is now not legal to do. But if you were really, really bad in school, the teacher had a belt. Now, not, didn't pull it off his Trousers, it it wasn't quite like that. In fact, it was much worse than that. These were specially manufactured for teachers to use on disobedient children. And it would be about a few inches wide and either three or four feet long. Teacher could order it to size. And you had to hold your hands out and whack. And that hurt, even if a teacher didn't have any muscles, it hurt. But the worst I ever knew a teacher to be His name was Whiffen, and he taught me English from about the age of 11, 12 onwards. And the man was educated, he was experienced, and 
He was erudite, but he was something of a, well, I would almost go as far as to say a bit of a sadistic thug. He seemed to enjoy belting the pupils in the class. And he would belt harder and more often than any other teacher. And he did seem to take a a real pleasure in doing that and imposing his discipline. And children in the class cowered in fear that they would get too many answers wrong or not have done their homework or, or be found talking or passing notes in class. He instilled great fear. We lived in dread. I have watched students being brought out to the front to be belted and as he would bring the belt down, they'd take their hand away, knowing that it would probably just mean he would force it to happen. But they were so terrified. I've seen other students brought up to hold another child's hand in place so he could belt them. He was very cruel. And people lived in constant fear of Mr. Whiffen and his judgments. There are people who live in an equivalent fear of God. They're worried that if they step out of line, the fires of God's judgment would fall on them. And any pleasure and any joy that they could have through the Christian message is kind of lost to them. Because the part about God's judgments, and God's judgments are real, and I believe in hell as a reality, and I believe that God judges. But sometimes people are so fixated on that aspect of it, they miss out on the great truth. God loves you. He really loves you. And wants that knowledge to control your heart. And that you should not live in in constant fear of God's judgments upon your life. So this morning, that's the theme. For you not to live with this terrible dread and terror all the time. And the passage that was read so beautifully to us a little earlier from 1 John chapter 4 verses 7 to 12, particularly verses 8 to 11, will be the passage that I want to share with you. And in those verses, I find especially two marvelous, great truths about God. And because those two things are true, there is one challenge, a consequence, as it were, of how we should live in this world. So that's where we're going. Two great truths about God and one challenge then for how we should live in the light of these truths. So here's number one. God is love. Verse 8, and I'm sorry if I read from a a different version than the one read to us, but here's how it goes. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. What John is writing is that God by nature by character, is love. And he doesn't say God is loving, or God has love. God is love. Through and through, our Heavenly Father is is love. Now that seems a strange thing. Most, Most things we deal with in life are a bit of a mix. They're an amalgam of all sorts of things. I, I, I ate some cottage cheese one of these days recently, and I looked at the, 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 the little tub it came in. There were at least 14 different things in that cottage cheese. It wasn't just one thing. We had a dog for 18 years, and maybe, maybe the explanation for why it lived quite so long, it was a mix, I don't know, of how many different breeds were all in that dog. It wasn't just one thing. I, I used to make compost bins 
for Alison, who's actually the guy. Dads may do gardening, but trust me, moms do too, this one especially. And, and she would want to compost. And if you'd really like to know about composting, well, God help you because you need it. But if you'd really like to know about composting, speak to Alison about that. But I would make these things out of wooden pallets. I had to saw up these pallets, the things you store stuff on in a warehouse. I had to saw them up to form them into these kind of container things into which you'd put all the kitchen stuff and some of the clippings from the garden and it would all turn into this wonderful stuff that feeds the plants. That's why you do it. But they were actually hard to cut because pallets are not kind of one kind of wood. There is soft wood, but there would be hard wood. There would be tight knots in the wood. If you've ever tried to saw through one of those, that's hard work to do. And they'd have long nails. My goodness, they were tough to cut through. We used to have lots of garden slugs that would crawl in amongst them. Trust me, they were easy to saw through. Let's not go there. But um, it wasn't just one thing. It was many things. You see where I'm going. Most things are a mix. And what John is saying about God is he is love. He's not a bit of this. He's not a bit of that. He is love. If you could cut into God through and through, you would find Love. Not love and, just love. Pure love. That's who he is. Well, that means two things that we need to know. Number one, that God is only loving. If his nature is love, what comes out will always be love. There's no thing other than good. There is not evil in God. There is not cruelty in God. There is not unfairness in God. So how he deals with you will always be in love. We have these four children. The youngest one is Catherine. When Catherine was about, I don't know, two years of age, we were taking all the children swimming. And we have one boy and three girls. Boy and then, that's the sequence in which they they arrived. So I would just have our son with me in the, the men's changing room. Pretty easy for me to get him ready. We would always be in the pool earlier than the ladies. Alison had these three girls, including this young, real young one. But on that particular day, I was standing at one edge of the pool, and I see Catherine, two-year-old Catherine, running out from the changing room area, heading for the pool. Now, Catherine would wear these kind of inflatable armbands so she could just float in the water. On that day, I could see. She'd obviously run away from her mom before Alison had got those inflated bands on her arms. So there's Catherine with no flotation aids heading for the water. And knowing she was always safe in the water, she jumped straight in. She bobs up to the surface and immediately begins to go down again. And I see this look of complete dread, terror on her little face. She's sinking. Now, I'm over here on the other side of the pool. What, what am I going to do? Am I going to think, stupid child, disobedient child, she ran away from her mother, let her suffer the consequence? I don't think so. So faster than this uh, body had ever moved, certainly through water, I'm over here, and I'm dragging her up, and she's crying, and I'm crying, and I'm hugging her close, because she matters. Because she was in trouble. Because she needed to be saved. Because I love her. And if I, as a human 
Father, with all my frailties, all my weaknesses, all my inadequacies, would never have stood by and left a disaster to happen. Do not dare ever imagine your heavenly Father stands aside and wills evil on your life. He loves you. He rescues you because He's love. And He is only loving. And I want to say secondly, He is always loving. Only loving, but also always loving. In other words, His love never runs out. I was flying one time in somewhere in Central Europe. I think it may have been Poland, but I don't remember for sure. And I had sat beside this lady in the next seat. I did not know. We had, I'm British. If you're not introduced, you don't talk to them. Anyway, we had not spoken anything. But the plane is now coming down. It was a cloudy kind of place. And those of you who fly often will know as a plane descends through the clouds, it bumps around quite a bit. I suddenly realized she was kind of gripping the seat in front. It was the white knuckle moment for her. And I'm thinking, shame but not saying anything. Then she spoke, and she said, are you not frightened? I was reading a book. No, I wasn't frightened. I said, no, I'm not. And she said, we're bumping around. And I, in my verbosity, simply said, yes. And she said, she said, we're going to crash. Well, I closed my book. I said, let me explain to you about thin air, and thick air. Now, I should admit to you, before I go any further, I know nothing about this. <laughs> it was all hot air. <laughs> but I said, let me explain about thin air and thick air. Air is not one consistency. And there's patches here where the air is thinner, and we just drop a little bit. Then we the wings hit the thicker air, and we sail on. I kept this going for quite some time. And she eventually realized we'd landed. And we were safe. And she was so grateful to me. But she said, here's my last question. She said, what happens if it's all thin air all the way to the ground? I assured her. That could never happen. You would never run out of air on which the plane could float. I have since heard there is at least 10% truth in my description, even though I was making it up on the time. I, it's good to confess your sins. But um, there are people who fear that one day their sins will be one too many. Or they'll let God down one time too many. And this love that they know exists will have run out, and there will be no mercy left. You need to know there is never a time when God runs out of love. There's never a day when He stops loving and caring for your life. God is love, and know these two truths. He's only loving, and He's always loving. There aren't any other moods or traits in God. You get love, and this is how it will be. One day God isn't going to wake up with intolerance for you or impatience for you or hostility. It will always be love. Our God is love. And if you remember nothing else from this morning, know that and treasure that in your heart. Here's truth number two now. God so loved us, He gave His Son for us. In other words, 
he didn't just feel sorry for us in our lostness. He acted to save us. Verses 9 and 10 of 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love. His love was made manifest among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. It's not that we loved God. In other words, God is not responding to affection, attraction that we showed towards him. It's not that we loved God, but he loved us. He took the initiative and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is good news. God did not sit back and bemoan our sinfulness. God didn't sit on a cloud and rain down thunderbolts from heaven as judgment on our wrongdoing. But God gave Jesus. God gave Jesus away so he could get us. He would let his son die on a cross in order to win us back. We speak about the cross of Christ. Of course we should. And yet, it was the cross of Alistair Brown because it was me who was the sinner. And you put your own name there. It's your cross. But it was Jesus who hung there. God sent his son to die in our place in order he could have us. And that is amazing. It is incredible love. Gave his only son to have us. But we find it hard to really, really know that, feel that, believe that, trust that. Because we know we don't deserve it. All of us probably were brought up, and maybe we're doing this with our own children, with a deep-rooted, deep-seated concept of rewards and, and punishments. Through December, every year, my mom and my dad would give me the little lecture. Alistair, not really been a very good year with your behavior, has it? No, not really been a very good year. You haven't done what you were told. No, I haven't done what I was told. You've often done exactly what you were told not to do. I know, I know. Well, it's not very long till Santa Claus is coming at Christmas. He doesn't give gifts to bad children, does he? No, he doesn't. You better pick your game up. That wouldn't be quite the Scottish expression, but that's what they meant. You better get your act together. You better behave or there'll be nothing. What are we telling our children when we use those kind of things? If you don't tidy up your room, you don't get a cookie. If you don't pass your exams, you won't get a bicycle. Whatever. The good things only are given to those who are good. And if you're bad, you get nothing. Or you only get punishment. And we have this in our heads. It's how we've been raised. It's how we've been made to think. Good things only if you deserve them. And if you use that logic with God, all of us have a failure mark. We've not been good. Therefore, God cannot give us anything in, in response which we would want to have. He cannot love us because we are bad people. It's a logic based on rewards and punishments. Love, love somehow must be one or you don't get it. Good news. God's love, does, God's love does not have to be one. This is a God of grace. And he gives us something so much better than what we deserve. And his love is freely given by a God who is holy love. He loves you because he chooses to love you. And he chooses to love you 
because by nature he is love. So he loves us whether or not, whether or not we deserve it. He loves us even if it hurts him to care for us. And it did. We speak about free salvation. Free for us, but very costly for God. His son dying on a cross in our place. Our penalty taken by him. When I was 10 years old, I have a 12-year-old brother. He was two years older than me is what I'm trying to say at that time. And we stayed in this kind of holiday place where... There were lots of activities for kids as well as for adults, and that, that was just paradise for, for me. And we would go on the boating lake and row the boats and things like that. Then came the day they were having the rowing boat races. And my brother and I, we were all dead set. We had to win the race. So it was our age group, and we got a boat, and one oar each. I was on one side, he was on the other and we kind of rowed our boat to the end of the lake because that's where the, as it were, the gun was going to sound and we had to row and see who got first against all the other boats at the other end of the lake. Before we even got to the starting point, we realized we had a problem. The problem was our rowing boat leaked. We get to the end of the lake and the water is over our ankles. The gun goes off, the race is on, and my brother and I were pulling on the oars, and the more we put effort in, the more the boat started to fill with water. And I tell you, by the time it's getting up to your knees, you really, really kind of know that you ain't going to make it. My parents were standing at the side, and they could see our boat going down and down, and could see what was happening. And suddenly they're gesticulating, roll over there. And we wanted to go there, but they said, roll over here, and... In a moment of common sense, and there weren't many of them, but in a moment of common sense, we realized we were going to go under. So we better get there quick. And so we headed straight for the edge. And there's my father bending down to grab this rowing boat just before it was about to go under and hold it so he could get his kids out. And it was a rough concrete jetty pier area. And as our boat was coming in as much speed as we could manage. My father mistimed his grasp. And instead of getting his hand over to hold the boat, his hand was trapped between the boat and this rough concrete. My father dragged it out. And there was blood pouring. My father was suffering from eczema anyway. So everything was already very fragile. And this was disaster. Blood was pouring from his hand. But he reached over. And he held onto that boat because even though it was agony, he was going to get his kids out of the boat. And I still, in my memory, even as I tell that story, I can remember watching my father afterwards literally walking in circles, nursing his hand because the pain was so extreme. But whatever it took was was what he would do in order to save his children. God accepted pain and God accepted death because nothing less would do to save you. And he would pay that price. We're undeserving, but God has loved us with a great and perfect love and gave his son for us. So those two truths, God is love. And the second one, God has so loved us, he gave his son for us.
And so I said there would be, in consequence of all that, a challenge. And here it is. Therefore, the challenge is, how should we live? And the answer this passage gives us is that we should love others as he has loved us. That's a high bar. But we should now love others as he has loved us. Verse 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Why? Three reasons. For one thing, it's the right response of gratitude to God. If you are met with love, your desire is to return it. It's to please the one who loved you. When Alice and I were first married and back from honeymoon, and I was, Alison wasn't working just at that moment, but I, I went off to work on that first Monday, I remember, thinking, I wonder, I wonder what she's going to cook for our kind of first meal of this new normal life together. And I kind of salivating all day about this, you know. And came home, and the, Alison welcomed me in, and she said, your slippers are in front of the fire. The cup of tea is already made. You just sit down and be comfortable. I felt I'd already gone to heaven. This was just marvelous. And she said, the meal will be ready in a moment. And sure enough, the most wonderful smells wafting across to me. So we sit down at the table, and she lifts the top off the pot, and there's absolutely fabulous casserole. And it was so tasty. It was so good. And I was a good husband in those days. And I told her it was just the best meal I'd ever had. My mom had never made anything as good as this. That's the right thing to say. And, she, and, 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 and Alison obviously was pleased that I'd enjoy, enjoyed the meal. Day two. I'm going to now speed the story up. But all day long I think that was just fabulous last night. What will it be tonight? I come home. Slippers by the fire. Cup of tea. Wonderful smells. Sit down at the table. Top comes off. Boy, another wonderful casserole. Told that it was fabulous. Day three. I'm coming home. Slippers by the fire, tea, casserole. Now, in my version of this story, two weeks then pass of wonderful casseroles. In Alison's version of the story, it's one week. But whatever, there came the day I plucked up the courage to say to my new bride, I said, I love, love your casseroles, but I'm sure I'd love something else as well. Alison, Alison said, well, you seem to like my casserole so much. <laughs> and I kept making them because, because I wanted to please you. When you're met with love, your response is to please the one who has loved you. And we serve God in this world. This is the world God has made. And the people around, sinners as well as saints, are people God has compassion for. And in response to the God who has loved us, we love and we serve them. Second reason. We love others because for a Christian, it's the most natural thing in the world to do. When you became a Christian, you weren't just a kind of affected in some emotional way. You didn't just gain some new doctrinal ideas inside your head. You were changed. You were made new. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You have been remade. And not just any kind of new creation. 
It was in the children's message, that 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 verse, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. You and I are children of this heavenly Father. And I need to tell you, children are like their parents. I know that at roughly the age I am now, mid-60s, I am pretty much the same height as my father was. He and I wore, have worn the same size, not the same shoes, but the same size of shoes. I began to lose my hair at pretty much the same age as he began to lose his hair because that's my father, and I'm like him. And it's not just these physical characteristics. It applies to personality and preferences too. He loved golf. So do I. He hated filling out tax forms. Oh my goodness, so do I. He was proud to be Scottish. So am I. He was very stubborn. And I'm just a little bit determined as well. Like father, so the son. And like the father, so shall be the sons and daughters in whom he lives. His life is in you. His spirit courses through your veins. So you will love because it's his nature now in you. And if you have little love for a lost world, for neighbors, for friends... The issue, in a sense, isn't that, let me put it this way, it's not at the horizontal level of whether you've got good neighbors or nice family. The issue is at the vertical level. How are you relating to your heavenly father? Because he sure loves that neighbor who's nasty and that family member who seems impossible. He loves them. And if his love is in you, so you will love these people too. And that verse 8, from which we get the phrase, God is love, is deeply troubling it's one of the most scary verses in the whole Bible because it says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Do you understand? If you don't love, you're, you're not in touch with this God. His nature is not in you. You've not been changed. And that's kind of a warning to any of us. Children of the loving God will have his nature, will have his love in them. And then the third reason why we will love Simply because the world needs us to. There are people in this world who need to hear about God's love. That's the task of evangelism. Witness. Sharing our faith with those who don't know. Here we are today. And at least half the world does not know the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that could reasonably lead them to put their faith and trust in Jesus. Friends, we're not two years 200 years. We're 2,000 years after Jesus walked this earth, and half the population of the world does not know the good news of the gospel. And some of these people are not in faraway countries. Some of them are in your family. They live in your street. They're in the same workplace as you. And if you will love them, you will tell them the good news and pray for God's moment I visited a woman one time whom I'd never met before, but I'd been given her name. I knocked on her door. She welcomed me in. And I found it was the worst of all moments because she ran daycare in her home for children. 
and it was four o'clock in the afternoon. So she had after-school kids as well. Place was infested with little children. She said, come into the kitchen. We'll talk there. It'll be quieter. Yeah, she had about a 10-foot by 8-foot kitchen with only six children in there. We sat down at the table, and I thought, I better go for this quick because she's going to be dragged off with these kids' needs. I said, Margaret, I'd love to tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. And she said, I, I wish you would. I want you to because my brother died two weeks ago, aged 29. And I need someone to tell me if there's such a thing as eternal life. I told her, and I wish I had 50 stories, and I don't, but I wish I had 50 stories like this. Half an hour later, that lady, Margaret, gave her life to Jesus. She was praying a prayer, and I was dragging kids off her at the time, but she gave her life to Jesus, and she really did. She came to church, she got baptized, she went on in her walk with Christ. Because it was the moment. See, God had been at work already in her life, stirring it. The task of evangelism is not to persuade the unpersuadable, but to find those in whom God is at work and be the ones who tell the good news at that moment that they're open to hear. Pray for God to give you people who are at that moment. There are other people, though, in showing God's love to them. They need to feel the touch of God. They need to experience God's love. It's Yes, we tell them, but we must also show them. I traveled a lot when I worked with the Missionary Society, been to India several times, and on my first visit, I went out for a walk in the cooler of time of the evening with an Indian friend in the streets of Kolkata. And I watched as the people who lived on the, on the sidewalk, the, the parents were wrapping their children in kind of sack-like material, to lay them down to sleep on the cold stone. I said to my Indian friend, how long till these families can get somewhere proper to live, a home of their own? And he kind of looked at me thinking, oh, this man really doesn't understand our world. I didn't at that time. He said, Alistair, in the sense you mean it of a home that's theirs, they will, they will never have one. The parents were born on this sidewalk and their children were conceived and born on this sidewalk. They will never ever live anywhere else. That really troubled me. I went back to the big villa where I was staying. I went to my nice, pleasant, comfortable bed. At three o'clock in the morning, I was waking because the shutters were banging because there was a tropical storm and the rain was lashing down and I was inside and I was warm and I was dry and I was safe and I knew out there they were lying in the rain. They had nowhere else to go. Oh, in the morning the sun would come out and they'd dry off a guess. But that was life. And that was wrong. I felt God saying, this is not how I meant my world to be. And it's not how it has to be. But God's people must be those. We don't turn and walk away. We don't kind of metaphorically cross to the other side of the street and pass by. We're those who are willing to get our hands dirty and take on the messiness of the troubles of this world and bring God's love into the midst of all these things. We are not entitled to treat our salvation as something for which we as Christians have a private party and let the rest of the world stay lost. We have a treasure that is to be shared. And the great thing is it doesn't diminish for us when we give it away. 
but people join us and there will be a great party one day in heaven. You will care and you will act. Friends, the bottom line of all this, we don't own our lives anymore. Paul wrote, you're not your own. You were bought at a price. So when God gave us health and strength, talents, abilities, skills and opportunities, money and resources, training and experience and friends and encouragers around us, they weren't just for us. All of that has been given for the benefit of the world that God made and the world that God loves. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The two truths, God loves us. God loves us so much he gave Jesus for us. And the challenge, God calls us now to love others just as he has loved us. So may you give every breath you take, every ounce of your strength, so that others may also know this God who is love, know of Jesus and experience his touch in their lives. Amen. So a prayer of blessing. Heavenly Father, great things you have done for us. The product of your love, the gift of your Son. So now, may he reign in our hearts. May he control every decision, every thought, every word, every action. And may we be a blessing to this world as we take that great love, your love, to the world in both word and deed. Part us in peace. Help us to glorify the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to walk with him daily in all you give each of us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.